Okay, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for sticking around for the panel discussion. Uh, the topic of our panel discussion today is how can Indian values contribute to peace and prosperity in America? Now, before we really go into exploring how you know, Indian values can contribute, I think it'll be prudent for us to first look at some areas where such contribution could possibly be warranted. So, Avadasi, let's start with you, since you have the microphone, that what are some areas where uh, you think in, in American life today, where uh, parts or at least, you know, uh, certain Indian philosophies and values can make a significant contribution? Um, it's a wide question, but uh, some of the things that we are already looking at uh, in terms of, for say, soft power, what people say, not everybody likes that term, but the soft power, we're looking at yoga, that's, that's one of the things that uh, our contribution is, um, Ayurveda is another one. I, I was thinking more, more in the sense of, you know, there could be, there are, you know, we're looking at uh, American society today, or American politics today, and we're noticing certain things, you know, things like you know, this, this aggressive, uh, I guess you could say materialism, mm -hmm. uh, this aggressive almost partisanship that you see that there's no middle ground anymore, there's no place for dialogue anymore, it's, it's, it's very my way or the highway. You're looking at things along the lines of foreign interventionism, which is like, all right, everybody in the world needs to follow their government or their social life exactly the way we do, rather than the idea of, all right, that's their system of operating, and as long as their system of operating is not causing any significant harm to me or their own people, then maybe it's okay for them to maybe exist that way. So I was thinking around like more along those lines of, you know, some problems that you probably see. Okay, yeah, I think I got it this time. <laughs> Uh, so, uh, I think what we're looking at is very, very essential to Hinduism. Uh, and that thing is self. Uh, we look at the world and we see the world is, could be theocentric, organized around religion, yeah? and uh, anthropocentric. You know, where we have to work for the whole humanity, you know, and some of the ideologies like liberalism, Marxism come under that. But Hinduism is self-centric, not self-centered, but self-centric because it probes us to look inside. What can I do? What can I do to better ourselves first? And Imagine if everybody can do better, then we are all better. So I think that's one of the es essential um, in, my, in my view. And the other one is uh, respect, mutual respect for what I think, what you think, and what everybody else thinks. Uh, the moment we say, like, you know, my way or highway, there is always a room for conflict. But when we say, okay, I respect what you think, or what you do, you know, uh, as long as it's mutual, I think we can work together. Right. Does it answer? Yeah, no, definitely it does. And Sudhaji, I want to get to you as well. Like, do you 
yourself, you know, having lived in the U.S. as long as you have, is there something that you notice particularly that sticks out for you, or that you think is something that, you know, when we're talking about Indic values and Indic philosophy, is something that, in your, uh, you know, uh, from your point of view, is a pain point that it could possibly address? Um, perhaps we acted, uh, you know, we, in fact, if you're, perhaps I could also respond to that question. Yeah, because, uh, okay, I think I want to compare the U.S. and to um, India, Indian values. One good way is to actually see the effects, how they played out in history, okay? Uh, Sheldon Pollock is one of the persons who is also very controversial. He's written a very good book, I mean, I've got some copies, which is on um, the language of the gods in the world of the gods. And he actually contrasts the Sanskritic, what he calls the Sanskritic cosmopolis, which was basically the whole of Asia. Because, you know, I talk about Buddhism and Hinduism, but actually it was, both of them by that time were using Sanskrit. Buddhists started out by rejecting Sanskrit, but they said, which was a Sanskritic culture, which was admired all across Asia, even China and other places. And he contrasts that with Rome. And he shows how the Roman Empire basically was based on the force of arms. He goes into much more detail, but since you're talking about tea. Whereas in India, it's quite the opposite. Most Indians didn't even know these countries existed. But yet, people from these countries, from Java and so many other countries, they were eager. So it was a full mechanism. So there was a greater India, not because Indians were, there were some things like the Cholas and everything, which were purely for material reasons, not for proselytizing, it was a trade routes. Um, all these countries were very eager to have, and even though I've been around recently in China and other places, there's so much respect for India. When they see you in a temple, they want to be photographed with you. I mean, I have this experience. It was a couple of years ago. So that is that. So actually been more interesting from Pollock as an American to compare India with America. Because you're talking about Marines and nationalism and all that. And actually America, you see Swami Vivekananda I said he is loved about American freedom. And I think he really believes in the founding principle of this country, which is different from any other country. It's a very conscious founding. No other country has been founded in such a self-conscious way as this country. Uh, people at the very beginning had some idea what they were doing, coming together around. But look at the way freedom is used. This freedom has become an excuse for war. Even though it's a threat, this culture has become predatory. It's predatory within itself, uh, the way people's relationship with each other. You can see the way politics is polarized, how, how low the politics has sunk. And it is no accident that somebody like Tulsi Gabbard, who's saying, bring back the troops, spend the money here, no foreign intervention. She's somebody who inspires herself from Hinduism. So this is one reason why I say it's not an accident, in my opinion. It's a cycle coming right from some Yeah, And uh, Raji as well, you know, it sort of speaks to that point of, you know, that there's an idea in Western philosophy which sort of looks at, at the earth as, you know, God made the earth as man's property to exploit. and. So they view the earth more as overlords of it, whereas Indic traditions look at the earth more as, you know, we're part of it. You know, it, it's more organic. If, if the earth is better, we are better. So, and, and I feel like that explains to a large extent as well how we see how India has behaved over the past thousands of years in its behavior with other 
cultures around it and how certain other cultures have behaved with relation to other cultures around it, where they've looked to suppress it, where they've looked to control it. And India, by and large, has been a, not, a, not an expansionist civilization at all. So in, in the current climate of you know, how countries are dealing with each other, there are some lessons there, right? Right, right. Uh, so in my talks, I state a, a, a statement. I say that in today's contemporary world, reducing your karmic footprint is equal to reducing your carbon footprint. And we need to be very aware of that. I understand the world, the world is even polarized whether human activity is causing the global warming and other such things, but keeping that aside, we understand that uh, what the speaker said, I agree completely, there's a different angle on that one, that materialism is causing technology to overuse resources of the earth, which is perhaps giving rise to what the scientists, 15,000 scientists that I talked about, who are saying that all indicators are going down. What is our role in this activity? Is a question that Hindus, Indians, Indian people, Indian need to uh, internalize very, very deeply to try and understand the role. And I believe it's karma. Everything, I have a choice. At every instant, I have a choice. I can choose to drive a gas guzzler going from the airport to here, or I can tell it, give me your best fuel-efficient car. I could do that also, right? And I, I know I'm causing a problem, but then we try to reduce that karmic footprint. So as a Hindu today, I can make many conscious choices that will help me to reduce the resources. That said, I'd like to give an anecdote, if I may. So, this question, unfortunately, is posed as a theological issue. The fact that Abrahamic theology is God made man in his image, and therefore it's a pinnacle of perfection, and also put him in charge of all creation to do as he likes, which has been interpreted today's world as, you can do anything. These things you can take. Mahmudinism has got something saying that this is forbidden, that is not Do you feel like that plays into the whole idea of you know the, the opposition to man's impact on the climate? That if it was made for us and if we were supposed to be overlords of it, how can it run absolutely, out of resources? Absolutely, absolutely, and that is the thinking that leads to denying climate change. That's the kind of thinking that denies climate change. I'm completely aware that that uh, kind of activity is happening. I had a conversation with a preacher in the New Delhi International Terminal. Was it T2 or T3? Forget the number. I think it's T3. T3. International. So I had five hours over, over late, and my daughter was wearing UT Austin uh, t-shirts. So an American preacher came and sat next to me. You're from UT Austin. I'm from Austin too. And I started talking. He didn't know what he was getting into. <laughs> and we had a pretty long conversation where I deconstructed the Abrahamic thinking, how resources are made. Uh, and he really did not know what he was getting into. <laughs> and, and, and what our Indic way of doing this. He gave me a beautiful answer. He listened. We had about three, four hours of conversation, but he gave me a beautiful line, which I believe can be the basis for a dialogue. He said, the fact that the Abrahamic God has said man is in charge of creation doesn't give license to rape the earth. Rather, it's a stewardship of the earth. It's a conscientious stewardship of the earth that can be reinterpreted. And that's an instance of then reversing the case, taking our technology, our thinking, and imbibing it and acculturing it to themselves, an instance of that, but it's for the positive. So when you said, what are the Indian values that can impact American contemporary life? I believe this is one of them. If you can tell them, look, with your theology, this is not a clash of civilizations. Your theology, 
God put you in charge. You have a stewardship, right? You can't just go about doing it. Scientists are saying it's denying climate change and these kinds of things. In our thinking, reducing carbon footprint is equivalent to karmic footprint. If you don't want to accept karma, this is our thinking, but you could do this and improve your And that way, that's, that way you're following God's commandment, but you're the stewardship of creation. So, right, yeah, I mean, it's a good point. But at the same time, I feel like, you know, you, you're talking about the acculturation that happens and they can imbibe certain ideas, even though they have to take it into the Abrahamic mold and, you know, mold it to their thinking. That's fine as long as it's an idea for positive change. But do you think that that can still lead to, you know, we, we talk about um, mutual respect a lot when we talk from an Indic perspective. Do you think that idea, that acculturation can still lead to mutual respect? Because what you notice in a lot of cases is you notice you take the idea, but the respect isn't there. You take the idea and you're like, okay, it's mine now. And I still hate you, but this idea is mine now and it's, I'm keeping it. So, Vishwalingam, I wanted to get back to you with that. Like, the imbibing is happening, but the mutual respect isn't necessarily. And what would it take for that to happen? So first of all, I agree with you this is happening. And actually, the person who has done the most to show this is somebody else who has been followed up. You know, I have worked closely with him on some of his books. Now, unfortunately, he has not yet published his book, which I worked with him a lot. It's what's called the Lutheran theory. That's how I first met him. Uh, at first, I was a bit skeptical. But then as I went into all the examples, and you know, I know what he's talking about, the Indology, they basically it's theft. You know, oil. Knowledge is also theft. You, who talked about, um, you talked about the thing at Oxford, no? Holbrook, uh, what is that? The Oxford, that, that, that uh, what's his name? William Jones. Yeah. Yeah. So it belongs to William Jones, and it doesn't belong to the Pandits who took him somewhere at this thing. You know, this, this is basically it, you know, patenting traditional knowledge from the Amazons and this and that, with Ethiopian knowledge. So this is, a, this is what I meant by predatory at every level, even at the intellectual level, uh, etc. Uh, what was the question, by the way? I, well, I the question was to, you know, that the, the theft, let's say, is happening, the imbibing is happening, but the mutual respect isn't it's necessarily there. happening. On, 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 the, on the contrary, one of the things that, you know, Rajiv Malhotra talks about five stages of the youth and this is connected with age also. The young student goes through, you know, wah, wah, wah. then he comes back and then slowly he starts, you know, so he's attracted by some things in India. When he comes back, he thinks he's a bigger picture than he thinks climate change. Finally, he says, this is all mine, you know. This happens at the individual level, it happens at the individual level. Christian Jogogi has yoga, right, so does he say, you know. Uh, things like that. I don't know if you've seen that monstrosity they call faith yoga these days. Have you seen no, 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 no. Where it's like, yeah. No, no. Apparently, do this in like, I've seen a couple of these churches that have, they do this faith yoga. Yeah, it's, a, it's an incredible thing. It's done with a straight face. So, in fact, now there's a whole movement and there's somebody very close to Vitzel who's also doing it, this guy. Uh, what's his name? Uh, he's American. Uh, Ernst and Paul. Yoga itself, they're saying, is actually all recent invention. Oh, wow. Uh, put together, and you know, you can see a big discussion. Entire books have been written uh, on this. So, the problem with Hindus is that uh, till now they have been very proud. Oh, oh they are taking it, you think they're good, they think they don't know what is really going on. So, they're digesting all the essence and then spitting out the thing and saying that's lost. See? So, people have to wake up and see. You know, I recommend you don't have to agree with everything that Rajiv Malhotra says. 
He uh, is the first person to speak up very boldly. Read him by yourself, because he's, you know, he could have easily uh, been just a very rich millionaire here, but he took early time and he devoted his life to this. So we owe it to him to actually uh, look how this whole phenomenon works. And there's one thing I want to mention about scarcity of resources. See, like even in Europe, because a small land uh, population, there was war, Europeans are very conscious of scarcity. The Americans are completely imprinted by the idea of the frontier, forever receding frontier, plentiful. Go there, there's gold, there's new land. You see? Now the whole country has been overrun. So when new Indians have become Middle Eastern, you know, sand diggers, <laughs> you know? So that mentality is there, that somehow, you see what they said about Venezuela? What did Bolton say about Venezuela? Oh, the oil, we will look after the oil for you. <laughs> they are doing in Libya and all of that. So this mentality, unfortunately, I think, uh, on the one side, you have to criticize. And unfortunately, I think, and this I said that at the University of Chicago in a public meeting, uh, this was when Ghosh, what's his name, the right Amitabh Ghosh was speaking. So the only language we ultimately understand is brute force. Brute force with moral backing. And this is why they are so terrified of Vladimir Putin. Yeah, it's, it, it is interesting. I mean, is it a question of just brute force, or is it a question of, I think, you know, when we're talking about mutual respect, you know, uh, I understand the idea that you're saying about brute force, because, you know, Ramdhari Singh Dinkar had a very interesting poem that way as well. Not, not in itself. Yeah. It cannot be just brute force, but then you just descend into violence. So, with a very strong moral measures, and people can see, you know, what this is really about. Yeah, and it, it, it's more of a, I almost feel like it's more of a question of confidence because in, you know, it brings me to an idea where you, I, in my time that I've spent here in the U.S. interacting with the Indian diaspora whenever I get the chance, one of the things that I noticed is not meek, really, I don't think that's the right word, but they almost go out of their way not to stand out. Apologetic. Yeah, yeah, it's almost like, they're assimilating to a fault. And assimilating is a great thing. That's what makes, I feel, in my opinion at least, that's what makes Indians such good immigrants in general. Yes. But I think they, they go out of their way to assimilate to a fault where they almost are too ready to relinquish any sort of sense of identity that, that they may have. So when you're talking about, oh, you know, why do uh, the people in the West or in America don't know anything about Hindus? It's because Hindus will go out of their way not to talk about it, you know. So, Avatars, did you see? Do you see that in your own experience, or is that? No, I do see that. But, but the problem, I think, you will talk about Hindu or your identity if you know it. Well, you know, we don't. We are not taught. At least I wasn't. In I went to a government school, a high school also. We're not taught about your uh, Vedas, or Puranas, or Upanishads, or Ramayana, or Mahabharata. These things are not there. Um, there are certain problems, definitely the problems are there because we don't know uh, about, about these things. I learned everything from my grandma, uh, my parents. I didn't know the logic behind it. I didn't know the reason. I didn't know, didn't understand a lot of things. But that's where I learned. I remember when I was a child, my father was a very, very, you know, he was influenced by Swami Vivekananda. Or at least he thought that 
that uh, it's good for kids to know about Swami Vivekananda. Okay, so he was a disciple of Swami Ramakrishna Paramhans. Okay, disciple in the sense that he would read quite a bit about him. You know, so we had Roma Ramana and all that right from the beginning, and he would. Uh, one of our uh, job as kids were to memorize some of his, you know, one or two of his quotations every day. Okay, so uh, that that gave us some idea about our culture, our religion. I'm not a very deep, you know, religious person in the sense uh, with the rituals and all those things, but. I'm very confident about my identity and very conscious about my identity as well. But I think for that you have to uh, know. The other thing is we are taught uh, to be very apologetic about yourself. Uh, you know, because the moment you talk about Hinduism, you talk about caste system and how bad it is and how discriminatory it is and how many people you know, you threw the whole society out of, uh, you know, outside the bounds of the villages and things like that, how many people you killed, and my God, I mean, I'm, you think about it and it's like, <laughs> where did it come from? And that's where, when I was talking about the disconnect also that comes from it, because when, I, when I'm learning from my grandparents, I don't see these things, you know, I had uh, people of all kind coming to our house, including uh, people from different religions, okay? We had different, you know, of people who came and worked our house, in our house, we had kinship terms from them. So ex-mama, ex-mosa, ex-mosi, that's, that's what we had. Uh, and I didn't know until I got to Delhi University and someday suddenly there was a Mandal Commission and I knew that there was lots of caste and there was this kind of discrimination that I didn't know about. So that's the disconnect it was. So I'm discovering those. Uh, and when I came to this country, uh, I also got exposed to a lot of literature, also thanks to the internet as well, and in, uh, in interactions with different kind of, uh, all kinds of uh, uh, scholars and academics and also. You kept uh, poking you, and okay, no, I'm gonna investigate this. And when I learned all those things, I. Uh, investigated those things and he says, no, this is completely not true. Yeah. Does that, does that answer you something? No, it, it definitely okay. does. I think, you know, it's a very good point as well about people not knowing enough about their own culture. And I really think that in a lot of cases people, you know, especially since we're talking about, you know, identity and success in America, talking about the American diaspora and the Hindus, Hindu diaspora based in the US, in a lot of cases I have noticed, at least, you know, again, this is from my interaction, that the first generation immigrants that come here, either they, you know, they just don't do it because they don't, don't think it's important or they almost go out of their way not to educate their children, the, you know, the first generation Americans that are growing up now, Indian Americans, they don't tell them about what their culture is, what this is, what, you know, they just say, okay, go ahead and assimilate, which is a very good quality. I'm not negating that at all. I think it's a very good thing for parents to say, you know, you're in this country now, make sure, make an effort to assimilate. But at the same time, these kids that are growing up in the United States, you know, they're growing up with 
a BuzzFeed idea of what Hindus are, uh, you know, or like a, whatever they're watching on YouTube on these, you know, MTV idea of what Hinduism and Hindus are. They're not getting it from the source. They're not getting it from their parents. So I don't know what it is. Is it, Ranji, do you think it's a, is it a case of that the parents don't know? Or is it a case of the parents just being like, I don't want to teach my kids this. And it, it's hurting, I think, you know, the cause of that, the interaction of Hinduism with American society that we're talking about, it's hurting that cause. Do you think it's, an, it's more of a question of they don't know or they're just not taking that personal responsibility? I think, I think uh, from, from the data points, at least, which I have, I would think it's ignorance. It's ignorance coupled with deep attempts to control identity. And control of the identity of the parents during their uh, studentship days. So growing up in India, if you can think that uh, the parents of today's American teenagers, first generation, if you, if you can put them in their uh, 70s growing years, 70s and 80s, they grew up in a toxic India. They grew up in an India where they were distanced from much of their rituals, their sources, their understanding, and their parents too were victims of that. We sometimes think we just have one or two generations away from this deracination, but that's not true. It goes back all the way to Maculay. It goes back all the way to Maculay and perhaps even beyond that. Deracination started there. Deracination started when the traditional Jati system occupation was gone. Deracination started when they said jobs would only be provided to people who know English. And by the way, preference given to Anglo-Americans or uh, Anglo-Indians or, uh, or, or Christians and so on. That caused the movement of people to take up jobs of this nature and move away from their traditional. That, that deracination started questioning people, questioning themselves, what is the practice that we're doing? Does it even make sense? That knowledge is gradually brought generation by generation. So maybe even by your great-great-grandfather's time, deracination had set in. So uh, 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 Dr. Sundar asked a question provocatively on is Hinduism constant? No, <laughs> is Hinduism constant? I think Hinduism is, I don't know, we can deconstruct every word there, but the point, point is that the practice of Hinduism, the practice of Hinduism or our understanding of Hinduism has continually been on a downward decline, I would say. Downward because we have devalued more and more of what connected people to their philosophies. Maybe your great-grandmother or uh, grandmother would have actually done puja at home. She'd have every day done puja, every day done certain activities. Maybe your great-grandmother and grandfather would have done some ritual things every day as part of their, who they were, that's what, that was an identity. But those practices gradually change. Either expediency or ignorance or a combination of both. And like I told you, when we do a textbook review in India, we look at the textbook content, what is there? There are deeply toxic words over there. Put in such a way that it makes the Hindu child feel small, uh, ashamed of their culture and gives an impression that they were nothing. Everything came to them from outside. Anything of value came from outside. All their systems are probably of, uh, not of value. So these are the values which the parents that you see today of American uh, teens grew up with. The lucky ones deracinated, they, they have deconstructed their cells and maybe they're hoping to get part of identity. But a great many people who don't have the resources. They don't have the resources. Yes, uh, let me add something. You know, uh, I have a slightly different take. I, I'm not negating what you said, but I think there are different sections of the population. 
You see, since 2012, I have worked a lot with the Chicago media, many different media outlets. So I've done a lot of going hands-on reporting. Hindu community a lot, majority. Also with Muslim, Jain, with a wide variety of different communities. Including a Hindu Catholic here, I come there. Artistic events, Patakali visit, do write-ups of some features. And um, what I've been seeing is that actually the, uh, there's a large section, especially the Brahmins, very conservative. In fact, they are, uh, and I see their tribal families handing down their children, mastery of Veena, music, dance, uh, it's quite admiration. It's a very uh, you know, strong conservatism, and I think that in many families here, uh, they are even more conscious of what they have after coming here, you know. So they practice it among them, the outside any of the IT people or this or that. They adjust, but when they come back, it's very clear that what they treasure and enjoy the most is those traditions which, uh, you know. In fact, uh, I myself, you know, I, Elizabeth and I left India, we lived in India for almost 16 years. So I left, um, we left here, I came here in 89. So I actually, we were very nostalgic for India. You would have preferred to remain if you could, but it's a long story. And so, this was like a substitute doing media work here. But we had to be with, and not just with the Hindus. I've covered Muharram here, I've covered Sunni uh, Muslim festivals, I've even covered Pakistani. But I think that the South Asian community here as well is actually quite conservative, very uh, attached to their traditions. Not necessarily, uh, you know, in an aggressive way. I mean, I've covered many Pakistani events, very well treated. They're very eager for me to come and cover them and all of that. So this is something common. Um, especially for the Hindu community here in Lamantu, I think there's another factor as well. For many Hindus, and not just Hindus, but uh, Indian Christians, Parsis, etc. They've come here and they've made their lives here. And some, they've been hugely, some of them have come with only a few dollars in their pocket. I know many, some of them very rich, but they came here very hard, but they could not have done this in any other country. So they feel a very great sense of loyalty and gratitude in this country. They love this country as much as they love India. And that's a very good thing. But does it mean supporting America in, in every way? You know? This is where I think Tulsi Gabbard needs to shake up all these people. If you want to be good to give back to this country, make sure it goes back in its right path. Yeah, no, no, I, I understand that. And I, 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 you know, I see shades of what both of you are saying. In fact, what Raji was saying was something that resonates with uh, me very much personally, because my family has had that journey. My dad, when he was a, was a, he was a young man, he was a devout communist. He grew up, you know, in a public school, grew up hanging out with his Lal Salam friends and uh, devout communist. But he got lucky in the sense that he said, you know, he used to hear certain things and he didn't just take them at face value. He said, okay, this doesn't sound right. Let me at least take a look and see if this is right or not. And that is what led him on his journey of sort of rediscovery, so to say, of his traditions and of, what, of his culture. And, uh, you know, it, it percolated down to me because then he uh, helped educate me. Otherwise, I would have been, you know, pretty much down the road that he went when he was younger. So, you know, the, the, that part of what you're talking about, Raji, definitely resonates in, in my personal experience. 
And yeah, you're right as well, Sundarji, as, as in where, where you see uh, a lot of Hindus in India that are very proud of their traditions, that hang on to their traditions, and that make sure that their kids grow up understanding those traditions as well. Yeah, yeah, sorry, here. Um, my apologies. And so do you think that it's just a question of that, you know, A, there's a little bit of them, the ignorance that Raji was talking about, and B, there's a little bit of, they hang on to it, but that's it. it it's, it's a very sort of enclosed affair. There's almost yeah. no, there's no talking about it outside of the home, discussion of it with their friends in any way. It's a very, like, tightly airtight affair. No, it's a kind of a ghetto they form for themselves right, to retain right. the thing. And um, the thing is, uh, the question is they need to ask themselves how long this can go on. You see, for example, um, uh, I, I, I come here, I enjoy a lot of Karnatak music, Hindustani music, dance, veena. You know, I come and see, I cover events where the small children play, etc. But even this ghetto thing is under threat. It is uh, under threat from within. Just a couple of months ago, have you heard of P.M. Krishna? Yes, yes. He was here. And I was invited by the University of Chicago to come and cover him. So of course I have heard about him, maybe heard a little bit, I didn't know much about the controversies. So he's a Brahmin. He comes from very, uh, that kind of man. He's a very good singer. There was a big debate in my forum. And now the Rajiv Mangotra's latest Swadeshi Indology conference is about this. <laughs> because after this debate, some of people associated with him in the Infinity Foundation India actually in my group. Uh, you know, and so they were arguing and this and so I was partly defending him, partly, partly, not fully. In fact, by, uh, with him here in University of Chicago, I was very, so so he's ridiculing. Huh? He's ridiculing. They invite him to come and sing, and he ridicules them. You know, this and that. So they are now under siege from within. There are people like him who are Brahmins, completely brought up in you know, strictly and very good masters who you know he has the art behind it sang at the University of Chicago uh, he inaugurated uh, the thing for world music in the University of Chicago and it was basically a deconstruction of Carnatic music using Carnatic music against itself yeah. you know that was what he did it was like we find some they are only minimizing me of my brother but anyway that's another story but um, so, uh, so the sort of uh, you know he was accusing the of being hypocrites of this that of putting that in his back. He's attacking Brahminism as a whole, and he's coming from somebody who's a Pakka Brahmin. So really, uh, we need to start thinking. You know, you cannot afford to now think intellectually what is happening to it, what is our situation, what are the threats? Can we ignore it? You know, uh, etc. And when somebody like Rajiv Malhotra makes a lot of noise. Don't start criticizing him by, see one of the things when he started doing, he was attacked by the Hindus. Oh, why are you bringing so much of negative attention? I was just constantly, more energy is him, oh, bad fellow. Don't, you know, I mean, he has a bad side, but you know, when he's done a job, it's only he has done. You know, and so with, you know, we're, we're talking about, you know, the, the, the need for asserting ourselves, you know, I think, our ideas a little bit more. And now we're seeing that to an extent, obviously, right? We're seeing um, people, you know, exceeding, uh, excelling in commerce. You're looking at them excelling in the science fields, you know, as business leaders. And now, you know, we're, we're also seeing, and Sundar, you mentioned that as well, that 
We're also seeing them emerge as political leaders. They're getting involved in politics more and more. That's a more recent phenomenon. So you're seeing them assert themselves a little bit more, but it's still a very like colorless assertion. You know, it's still like they're Indians in these fields, but it's not like okay, we're Hindus in this field. We're just like people from a Hindu Indian background in this field. So I think you know, in in a in a time in the United States where there's you know the increased acceptance of diversity, increased acceptance of pluralism, increased acceptance of tolerance and mutual respect and listening to each other when people are talking about how, how these qualities are very important. And you have a culture and you have a philosophy that embodies these principles so well. You know, I think it's, it's really time, it's, it's, the time is ripe right now for Hindus to assert themselves and assert their culture and philosophy in this way. And what do you think needs to happen to, for, for, for that to come to the forefront? You know, is it, uh, is it more of a question of just, do you think it's something that will just happen organically? Or do you think that families in educating their children need to take that personal responsibility? Um, that's a tough question, but uh, going back to you know what uh, we were talking about, I have seen 